Volume two, chapter fourteen of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume two, chapter fourteen. Verity in women is sometimes the accompaniment of a rare power of loving, and when it is so, their attachment is strong as death, their fidelity resisting as the diamond. Amiel. The newspapers arrived at tea time at Garston. Every afternoon Mrs. Garston and Mrs. Courtney drove out along the straight high road to fetch the papers and post the letters, four miles in and four miles out, the grey pair one day and the bays the next, in the old yellow chariot. It was the rule of the house. And after tea and rusks and a poached egg under a cover for Mr. Garston, gentlemen read the papers aloud in a voice that trembled and halted like the spinet in the southern parlour. "'Is Parliament prorogued yet?' Mrs. Garston asked regularly every afternoon. Mr. Garston, without answering, struck his keynote at the berths, and quavered slowly through the marriages and deaths. Before he had arrived on this particular afternoon, at the fact that Princess Beatrice had walked with Prince Henry of Battenberg, Mrs. Garston was already nodding between her little rows of white curls. Mrs. Courtney was awake, but she looked too solemnly attentive to continue in one's day. "'The remains of the Dean of Gloucester,' continued Mr. Garston, "'will be interred at Gloucester Cathedral on Friday next.' The information was received, like most sedatives, without comment. Latest intelligence. Colliery explosion at Snarley. "'Die? Had not John Culpits at Snarley?' asked Mrs. Courtney, becoming suddenly wide awake. "'Yes,' said Di. "'Explosion of fire-damp,' continued Mr. Garston, slower than ever. "'No particulars known. Great loss of life apprehended. Mr. Tempest of Overley, to whom the mind belonged, instantly left Godalmington Court, where he was the guest of Lord Caradoc, and proceeded at once to the spot where he organised a rescue party led by himself. Mr. Tempest was the first to descend the shaft.' The gravest anxiety was felt respecting the fate of the rescuing party. Vast crowds assembled at the pit's mouth. No further news obtainable out to date of going to press. Mrs. Courtney looked at Di. He must be mad to have gone down himself, she said agitatedly. What could he possibly do there? His duty, said Di, and she got up and left the room. How could anyone exist in that hot, close atmosphere? She was suffocating. The hall was cold enough. She shivered as she crossed it, and went up the white shadow stairs to her own room, where a newly lit fire was spluttering. She knelt down before it and pushed a burning stick further between the bars, blackening her fingers. It would catch the paper at the side now. John had gone down the shaft. Yes, it would catch. The paper stretched itself and flared up. She went and stood by the window. "'John has gone down,' she said, half aloud. Her heart was quite numb. Only her body seemed to care. Her limbs trembled, and she sat down on the narrow window-seat, her hands clutching the dragon hasp of the window, her eyes looking absently out. There was a fire in the west. Upon the dreaming land the dreaming mists lay pale. The sentinel trees stood motionless and dark, each folded in his mantle of grey. Only the water waked and knew its god. And, far across the sleeping land, in the long lines of flooded meadow, 
the fire trembled on the upturned face of the water, like the reflection of the divine glory in a passionate human soul. It passed. The light throbbed and died, but Di did not stir. And as she sat motionless, her mind slipped sharp and keen out of its lethargy and restlessness, like a sword from its scabbard. Now, at this moment, is he alive or dead? And at the thought of death, that holiest minister who waits on life, all the rebellious anger, all the nameless fierce resentment against her lover, because he was her lover, fell from her like a garment, died down like Peter's lies at the cards of Christ. The evening deepened its mourning for the dead day. One star shook in the empty sky above the shadow and the mist. Love the gift is love the debt. And I perceived that at last. A great shame fell upon her for the divided feelings, the unconscious struggle with her own heart of the last few weeks. It appeared to her now ignoble, as all elementary phases of feeling, all sheaths of deep affection must appear, in the moment when that which they enfolded and protect grows beyond the narrow confines which it no longer needs. If he is dead, Di twisted her hands. Who, one of two that had loved and stood apart, has escaped that pang if death intervened? A moment ago and the world was full of messengers waiting to speed between them at the slightest bidding. A penny stamp could do it. But there was no bidding. A moment more, and all communication is cut off. No armada can cross that sea. Perhaps he is dying, and I sit here, she said. I would give my life for him, and I cannot do a hand's turn and she rocked herself to and fro. For the first time in her life Di dashed herself blindly against one of God's boundaries, and the shock that a first realisation of her helplessness always brings struck her like a blow. She could do nothing. Many impulsive people, under the intolerable pressure of their own impotence, make a feverish pretense of action and turn stones and pebbles as they cannot turn heaven and earth but Di was not impulsive. And the gong sounded, first far away in the western wing, and then at the foot of the staircase. Many things fail us in this world. Youth, love, friendship, take to themselves wings. But meals are not among our migratory joys. Amid the shifting quicksands of life, they stand fast as milestones. Di dressed and went downstairs. It seemed years since she had last seen the parlour, and old Mr. Garston standing alone before the fire. He did not appear aged. "'It's later than it was,' he remarked, and she had a dim recollection that in some misty bygone time he invariably used to say those words every evening, and that she used to smile and nod and say, "'Yes, Uncle George.' And so she smiled now, and repeated like a parrot, "'Yes, Uncle George.' And he said, "'Yes, Diana, yes.' Breakfast was later than usual next morning. It always is when one has lain awake all night. But it ended at last, and I was at last at liberty to rush up to her room, pull on an old waterproof and felt hat, and dart out unobserved into the rain. The white mist closed in upon her, and directly she was out of sight of the house she began to run. There were no aimless wanderings and pacings to-day. Oh, the relief of rapid movement after the long inertia of the night! 
the joy of feeling the rain sweeping against her face. She did not know the way, but she could not miss it. It was only four miles off. It was eleven now. The morning papers would be in by this time. If she walked hard, she would be back by luncheon time. And in truth, a few minutes before two, Di emerged from her room in the neatest and driest of blue serge gowns. Only her hair, which curled more crisply than usual, showed that she had been out in the damp. She had come home dead beat and wet to the skin, but she had hardly known it. A new climbing, agitated joy pulsated in her heart, in the presence of which cold and fatigue did could not exist, in the presence of which no other feeling can exist, for the time. "'Are you glad John is out of danger?' said Mrs. Courtney that evening as they went upstairs together, after Mr. Garston had read of John's narrow escape. John had been one of the few among the rescuing party who had returned. "'Very glad,' said Di. And she was on the point of telling her grandmother of her expedition that morning, when a sudden novel sensation of shyness seized her, and she stopped short. Mrs. Courtney sighed as she settled herself for her nap before dinner. "'Has she inherited her father's heartlessness as well as his yellow hair?' she asked herself. Mrs. Courtney had lived long enough to know how few and far between are those among our fellow-creatures whose hearts are not entirely engrossed by the function of their own circulation. Youth believes in universal warmth of heart. It is as common as rhubarb in April. Later on we discern that easily touched feelings, youth's dearest toys, are but toys, shaped stones that look like bread. Later on we discern how fragile is the woof of sentiment to bear the wear and tear of life. Later still, when sorrow chills us, we learn on how few amid the many hearths where we are welcome guests a fire burns to which we may stretch our cold hands and find warmth and comfort. End of Volume 2, Chapter 14